Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you want to go to Israel? That's a strange text to get. I've known Steve for about 25 years. We've been on motorcycle trips together and a few uh, mission-type trips, re, re, uh, storm recovery-type, repair-type things. And uh, so I, I uh, saw him at work the next day and got some more information. And it turns out he was going with another church group, and his wife was not interested in traveling all that far. And, but Steve, being frugal, appreciates the fact that it's cheaper to go two to a room than one to a room. So he asked me if I wanted to go. And I thought, well, if I'm going to go all that far, I'm going to see if Kathy wants to go first. So uh, like Steve's wife, Kathy was not interested in all that travel to go that far. So I said, Steve, count me in. Let's go. So we went, as most of you know, in February, of early February of this year. And before I went and after I came back, several of you had said to me, have said to me, hey, we want to hear what happened. We want to, want to see what you saw. And so I didn't want to just put out pictures and say, we were there and we were there. Uh, so in Sunday school class for the past month, we've been uh, looking at the scriptures that apply to the specific sites, uh, many of them that we saw in uh, Israel. We went to 39 different tourist attractions there, um, and I think we've covered about five of them so far in a month of Sunday school class, so we could be there for a while. But that's where my head has been at for the last month or so. So when uh, we found out Kyle could not be here today, and it's my, it was my Sunday to be a uh, responsible elder for things, and it kind of fell to me, I said, well, I'll just talk a little bit about my Israel trip um, but I want to specifically focus on a small uh, portion of it, and that would be the Sea of Galilee. My goal for the next few minutes is to take us on a little bit of a virtual field trip to the Sea of Galilee and make you feel like you were there. If I fail in that, if this is terrible, I have a backup goal, and that would be that you pray harder for a full-time pastor. So, <laughs> so either way, I'm going to get one of my goals accomplished for this sermon. Kevin, would you put up the map of Israel? Thank you. So uh, that's the map of, of the area that we call the Holy Land or Israel. And my Sunday school class people will get tired of hearing me say this, but you can immediately recognize the Holy Land by the two lakes, the Sea of Galilee at the top, the smaller one, the Jordan River that connects it to the Dead Sea down below. So that's my landmark. When I'm looking at maps and I want to see, well, where is the Holy Land? I look for the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River connecting it down to the Dead Sea. Uh, you see to the left of the Dead Sea, there's, I, I don't know how far, I guess since I can't see that, that means you can't see that. So the, the Jerusalem area is to the left of the Dead Sea down near the bottom. As you can imagine, lots of tourist sites there to see, and um, we did that later in the trip. But the earlier parts of the trip that we're into into the Sunday school class now are around the Sea of Galilee, and um, that's where we're going to focus for the next few minutes. Uh, Kevin, could you put up the, the sea? Okay, so that map is zoomed in a little bit on the upper section of the previous map, and that would be the Sea of Galilee. So a lot of things happened around the Sea of Galilee. It's about 
uh, 13 miles long from top to bottom and about eight miles wide from left to right. Not very big. Uh, you and I would call it a lake, probably more than a sea. It's about 150 feet deep at the deepest point. The reason I want to talk about that today, though, is because that area of Galilee and on and around the Sea of Galilee is where the majority of the miracles that are recorded that Jesus performed happened in this area. Lots of history, lots of ministry went on in this area. This is just a list uh, of what I found recorded. He healed a withered hand. Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. He calmed the stormy sea twice. He walks on water. And by the way, Peter walked on water too for a little bit. He healed, Jesus healed the demon-possessed man and that whole pig thing happened to the right of the Sea of Galilee there, the upper right area. He uh, healed a blind man in Bethsaida up in the top there. He fed 5,000 people in Bethsaida and families, uh, 5,000 men plus their families, and he did 4,000 in another site there in the area of Galilee. In a place called Gennesaret, he healed many people. Near Caesarea Philippi, he healed a boy possessed by a demon. And then in Capernaum, we haven't even got to Capernaum yet, in the upper, uh, about 11 o'clock position on the Sea of Galilee, that was Jesus' uh, home base, if you will, for his, his active years of ministry. And he did all of this in Capernaum. He healed a man possessed by a demon. He raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. He healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. He healed a leper. He healed a centurion's servant. He healed a paralyzed man. He healed a woman with internal bleeding. He healed two blind men. He healed a mute man possessed by a demon. Those are just the miracles that we are, find recorded in Scripture. There might have been many others. I'd like to take a closer look at the feeding of the 5,000 and then when Jesus and Peter walked on the water. Jesus and his disciples had recently heard the bad news that John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. That's where we'll pick up the story. When, he, when Jesus heard what had happened, in other words, heard that John the Baptist was dead, I'm in Matthew 14, 13 through 36. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin is so much ahead of me. Thank you, brother. Uh, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now get this picture. Jesus is trying to get away a little bit. He's grieving. Maybe he wants some solitude for a little while. He's across the lake. You saw how small it is. They see him. There's Jesus on the boat. We'll just walk around and we'll meet him on the other side. When he landed, he saw the large crowd. He had compassion on them and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, 
and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night he was there alone, and the boat, which had the disciples in it, was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. Again, people brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. So it's a busy night and more ministry when they get back on the other side. Now, I'm going to... I'm gonna, uh, have Kevin play you a partial video, about 15 minutes of a video on this lesson by a pastor who has done a lot of excellent videos of the Holy Land on his tours. I've used excerpts of a couple of them in the Sunday school class. This is Dr. Tim Fink, and he gives us a good breakdown of this uh, story of the Jesus walking on the water. Okay, Kevin. So it says that they were a long way from the land. It says Matthew 14, 24. And you have to understand a little bit about the background of this story to really understand and let it really impact you. And that's what we're going to do this morning. The disciples had just come off of a long ministry schedule. They had been sent out two by two. And they had traversed Israel healing. And they come back and they are dead tired. They're beat. They've been living in people's homes, you know, eating whatever they were offered, just, just hard ministry for some time. And they come back, and Jesus recognizes this, and he said, uh, let's go away to a desolate place to rest. So they head over to the east side, we believe, is where he fed the 5,000. We'll talk about that in another video, give you some real biblical, strong evidence of why we believe geography and scripturally it took place on the eastern side because Bethsaida is on the eastern side and it says that they were headed towards Bethsaida and then they wound up a little bit south of Bethsaida which was a little more desolate. So they had come off a long period of ministry and Jesus said let's go to the other side to, towards Bethsaida and rest a while. So they get over there but they're going in boat but people are, they can see him. As you can, I mean they can see him from the shore and they know it's Jesus. So when he gets over there he's greeted with 5,000 men, but it says that after he fed them, it was just 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. Probably it was a group of 15 to 25,000. 
that was actually uh, what he fed. So after he gets over there, he ministers all day. It says Christ had compassion on them. So he chose to, to minister and teach them and heal them all day. So then that was not a restful day. And then as it's getting evening, he feeds them. Then after he feeds them, they want to make him king. And what they had in mind was a king like David or a king, a Messiah king who would conquer the Romans, rule, and set up his kingdom, get back their autonomy. They were under Roman rule, so that's what they had in mind. But what you see in Scripture is that you see that there are two aspects to Christ's coming. And in Scripture sometimes, in the Old Testament, those are packaged, kind of sandwiched together, and you don't always see them. But there's Christ's first coming when he came to die for our sins, and he came as a humble servant, as a lamb. But when he comes back the second time, he's riding on a horse, and that was a sign of power and conquering. So he's coming back as a king to reign and to rule. So he comes back in power and great glory. Anyway, they wanted to make him king. So he feeds them. And then after he feeds them, he goes up on a mountain to pray. Now, it says, then he sent away his disciples. The disciples got caught up in the frenzy of the crowd wherein uh, they wanted to make him king. And so he sent them away, sent them, it says, over towards the other side. He says he sent them towards Bethsaida. So it means that they had to be south of Bethsaida just a little bit. But anyway, then what happens? Well, Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. And then a storm arises. So what happened is Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. I believe he prayed and he laid out this whole scenario wherein he was going to embed within them who he is in a, in a deep, powerful way. So this storm arises and they're caught up in this storm. And it says that they rode and they rode and rode. And it says in John 6, 16, it says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and headed across the sea. It says in this account to Capernaum. So that's right over here. And then Jesus, uh, once again, he's up on this mountain praying, and he prays to send this storm. It says in Matthew 14, 24, But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And it says in Mark 6, 48, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Then it says in John 6, 17, It was now dark, and Jesus had not come to them. The sea became rough, because a strong wind was blowing. So the disciples are out in the middle of the sea, a long ways from land. Jesus has created this storm, and they're rowing against it. So coming off a long time of ministry, they go over, have a long day of ministry, and now they're coming back, headed towards Capernaum, but then this storm arises, which Christ created, and they're out in the middle of this. And Christ purposefully let them fight all night. And it says in Matthew 14, 25, it says, In the fourth watch of the night, what time would the fourth watch be? That would be about between three and six in the morning. I would say it was probably around maybe four, five. It was, it was still dark. I mean, there was no horizontal light coming from the sunrise. So it was dark, probably I'd say about four. And it says, He came to them walking on the sea. And in John 6, 19, it says, When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat. So they're out in the middle out here. They've been, they've been fighting all night. I mean, just imagine, and they were in survival mode. They thought they were going to die. 
They, this storm was, was horrific. The waves were pounding. They, they, they rolled all, all night and could only get three or four miles or maybe five kilometers. And then it says they become terrified. It says in Matthew 14, 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. I mean, just think about it. It's, it's dark. It's a storm. And they see someone walking on the sea and, and they're, they're terrified. And it says that they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out in fear. So they're just, the adrenaline rush that they had was immeasurable. They're just in the state of panic. And they, they're just, I mean, have you ever been so scared where you just, just a sound comes out of you? I mean, you just, you just scream. They're, they're crying out in fear. So I want you to think about their emotional state at this point. They were already exhausted uh, from their ministry of being sent out by two by two. They were exhausted. They were worn out. They went over to rest. They had a long day of ministry, feeding the 5,000, all of that trauma. Uh, then they row, row all night, fight against the storm all night. They're in this state of panic. Uh, do you think that they slept any that night? No, they had rolled all night in survival mode. So they're deadbeat tired. They're exhausted and they're, it's still dark. Like I say, it's about uh, four in the morning. They feared for their lives. They were alone and they were terrified when they saw Jesus. So that's their emotional state. So they were just in this, this total state of just shock and deadbeat tired and worn out and, and fearing for their lives. So it says uh, that then Jesus spoke to them. In another account, it says he intended to walk by them. <laughs> then he spoke to them. And it says in Matthew 14, 27, it says, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. What kind of I? The great I am I. It's, it's the I am. Jesus referred to himself as the I am. That was how God uh, defined himself when he spoke to Moses, right? I am that I am. And Jesus referred to himself as the I am. So he says to his disciples, I am. The I am is with you, don't be afraid. So then Peter uh, walks on the water for a moment. It says in Matthew 14, 28, it says, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Then it says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Sometimes we knock Peter, but how many of us would have gotten out in a boat in a storm? He had grown up on this lake. He knew this sea, and he had never walked on water before. So, but he sees Jesus, and he says, if it's you, let me walk on water. So he gets out, and he walks on water for a, a while. I don't know how far it was, maybe 40, 50 feet. We don't know, but he, but he did walk on water. Think, think about that. I mean, think about you if you were actually, I mean, you knew this lake once again, and then you'd never walked on it, and now you're walking on this water. Okay, but then he begins to doubt and becomes, becomes fearful and he cries out. So doubt filled his mind. 
And then it says the disciples worship Jesus as the Messiah. It says in Matthew 14, 32, when they got into the boat, and who's they? Jesus and Peter. It says the wind ceased. So Jesus supernaturally then just calms this storm. And now it's dead quiet like it is right now. Now that is astounding. I mean, imagine, once again, you've rode all night, you're in survival mode, and then all of a sudden, with the click of your finger, it just immediately, it says immediately. Didn't take a moment, didn't take a moment for it to die down, it was just bang. It's dead quiet. And it says, those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And in Mark 6, 52, it says, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and it says that they were utterly astounded. So they're just, they're just absolutely touched to their core, and they worship Jesus as the Messiah. So at this point, that was a major paradigm shift in their thinking. They, they knew before that that Jesus was God, they knew that he was the Messiah, but this situation that Jesus supernaturally created, as he was Lord of the weather, he was Lord of everything, and he embedded within them once and for all that he was the Messiah. And never was there ever a doubt in their minds. And then it says Jesus and the disciples then miraculously arrive at the other side at Gesenaret. Now, Gesenaret is exactly where we started sailing from. So they're out in the middle, and then it says that immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So immediately the, 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 the storm is calmed. Then they spend some time worshiping Jesus. And then immediately, bang, they're at the boat dock. It doesn't stop there. After already being exhausted and missing a night of sleep, guess what awaited them? more ministry. Yeah, all the people then, when they knew that he arrived, all of the people around that area, it would be Magdala, Gesenaret, Migdal, all those places, uh, probably Tobgit, then they gather. It says in Matthew 14, 34, and when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gesenaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him begged him that they might touch only the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well." So no, no rest. And when they had decided to go over, it says that there were such great crowds that followed them that they didn't even have time to eat. I mean, they're just, they're just knee-deep in ministry. And once again, they had gone over to get some, some rest and solitude, and there was no rest that day, and they are fight the sea all night, there's no rest that night, then they get over there and they jump right back into ministry. Okay, Kevin, that's, that's where I wanted to stop. So, what are some faith lessons that we can... So I have, I have two minor disclaimers I want to make uh, about the video. Uh, Dr. Fink states twice that Jesus prayed for the storm and that He caused the storm. And I'm... I'm not convinced of that, so I searched for Scripture to support that, and I could not find one. And then the other thing is, he repeatedly pronounced the place called Gennesaret as Gesenaret. And I wondered, was this some sort of local dialect thing? Like, 
Where I live in Scottsburg, the people who grew up there say, I live in Scottsburg. It's, it's a Scotchburg, it's, but it's spelled Scottsburg. So I wondered if it might be something like that. So I mentioned these two uh, small uh, questions I had to Kathy and that I, did, I wondered where Dr. Fink got these from, and she said, ask him. I said, well, who am I, the sound man, to question the doctor? But I texted him or emailed him, and he responded back quickly. And he said, he went on to explain how he, he believes in the sovereignty of God and God controls everything, and he was working it out for the disciples in the boat to truly see that he was the Son of God, and he caused the storm to do that. He said there is no specific scripture I got that from, Jamie. So I'm still not there with him on that, but I certainly can uh, appreciate that, and he might be right. Uh, the second thing he just said about pronouncing Gennesaret as Gesineret, he said, I just messed that up. Sorry about that. Uh, so I was very humbled and appreciative that he responded back uh, right away. So there are some applications I would like to make in the time that I have left uh, with you. There are four, and, and I'll be brief. Um, four applications. After multiplying the few pieces of bread and fish to feed thousands, and after seeing Jesus walk on water, the disciples finally believe that Jesus is God. That's point number one. Jesus is God. In verse 33 of what we just read, it says when, they, when Jesus and Peter got back in the boat, they all said, truly you are the Son of God. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He is not a prophet or a good man. He is the Son of God. The Messiah that was long foretold of in the Old Testament. When I was in Jerusalem, it was sad for me to see so many devout Jews praying at the western wall of the temple and realizing that they do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They are still waiting for the Messiah. That's sad. But John 8.58, Jesus declared that He existed before Abraham. He has to be God. In John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus fulfilled the many Old Testament predictions that were made about Him long before He was born. Even the name of Christ means Messiah in Hebrew, Savior of the world to us. And in Luke 4, Jesus returns to Nazareth to announce in the synagogue that He grew up in that He is the Messiah who was predicted for so long. So you see, He cannot be just a good man or a good teacher. He is either the Son of God, Savior of the world, or He is a liar. There is no in-between. That's point number one. Point number two, like the disciples in the storm, we must go through difficult times to grow. We must go through difficult times to grow spiritually. Be assured God will allow storms. We need them. Just like an athlete needs to stress their body to make it stronger, we need to face difficult times to grow into maturity. We all know the familiar verse, James 1 Verses 2 and two through 4. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
An example of this idea that trials produces steadfastness is our military service. Countless young people have entered the military as immature mama's kids, only to come through that unique set of trials called military discipline as responsible adults, or at least more responsible than when they went in. That reminds me of another thing I saw in Israel. All the boys and girls there serve a mandatory two-year military tour when they turn 18. Obviously, that results in a lot of military presence we saw in populated areas. I saw beautiful 19-year-old girls with makeup and fatigues carrying machine guns. It's a strange sight. But you know, they weren't poking on their phones. They were serious. They were responsible um, people, and it was impressive to see. I couldn't help but wonder, in America, could an increased military presence like that, as well as the maturity that would come from mandatory uh, training like that, for our young people, would it reduce the rise in mass shootings in America? I'm no expert, but I think so. I'll move on from that. Point number three, point number three. Like Peter did when he was above water, we need to focus on Christ and not our situation. We need to focus on Christ and not our situation. I'm sure that the wind was scary. Apparently, it caused Peter to doubt that he could make it to Jesus. The text says that he did not begin to sink until he was afraid. There's a site, a website I've used before called gotquestions.org. I recommend them. They're conservative, biblically based, and they answer all type of religious biblical questions. And so I just uh, typed in there a search about fear. Here's what gotquestions.org says about fear. In Psalm 56.11, the psalmist writes, In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is an awesome testimony to the power of trusting in God. Regardless of what happens, the psalmist will trust in God because he knows and understands the power of God. The key to overcoming fear, then, is total and complete trust in God. Trusting God is a refusal to give in to fear. It is a turning to God even in the darkest times and trusting Him to make things right. This trust comes from knowing God and knowing that He is good. As Job said when he was experiencing some of the most difficult trials recorded in the Bible, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Once we have learned to put our trust in God, we will no longer be afraid of the things that come against us. We will be like the psalmist who said with confidence, let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Again, point number three, we must focus on Christ. Point number four, life is not all fun and games. Life is not all fun and games. Note what the disciples and Jesus had been through. They sought rest, but instead were presented with more ministry work to do. They did not quit. They did not say, that's not my job, or that's not my gift. They did what Jesus asked them to do. Ministry is hard work. I believe it was Scott in a recent elders meeting that reminded us that this work we do is a marathon, not a sprint. We need to be in it for the long haul. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
We are all supposed to be working. These works can often be hard and long, like, the, like those of the disciples as they served Jesus. But servanthood is a hallmark of Christians. You don't need to necessarily be talented or gifted to serve, just be available. The most important ability that any Christian can have is availability. I've told you nothing new today. You've heard this, stu this stuff. You've heard these things many times before. But like one of my favorite preachers, Dane, would often tell us, the storytellers of a culture shape the values of a culture. We need to keep hearing these stories and these truths regularly so that they shape our values. I want to close with an analogy that is not original to me. This comparison comes from Dr. Tony Evans, another one of my favorite preachers. I recommend that you listen to him in some of his sermons if you're so inclined, Dr. Tony Evans. That's probably the best tip I'll give you out of this whole sermon there. When two NFL teams play, one group of big strong men is trying to force another group of big strong men to go in opposite directions. And they will not agree on which way the football should travel. It would be chaos if it were not for the officiating crew. The officiating crew must work together as a unit for the game to proceed orderly and at least somewhat honorably. They have a rule book to go by and it is entrusted to them from the authority of an NFL commissioner. The individual opinions of the officiating crew members are irrelevant while they are on the field. The officials do not have the authority to change the rule book only to point out to the big strong men when they have violated the rules. They do this with a bright yellow piece of cloth. They call a foul a foul. They don't jump up and down, scream or insult people. They just throw their penalty flag and calmly signal to the big strong men what is a violation of the rule book. As a result, the big strong men learn that to succeed, they need to play according to the rule book. By now it's probably obvious that I am comparing the chaos of a football battle to our society around us and the officiating crew represents something of how the church in America should operate. We have a rule book, the Bible. It is given by the authority of our commissioner, God. We have been assigned to influence the world with its teachings to bring order to chaos. This NFL analogy falls apart though when the churches unlike the NFL officials, feel like we don't have to apply the whole rule book. We sometimes pick and choose whatever rules suit our inclinations. We sometimes endorse things that God despises and ignore people that God loves. We're sometimes too timid to throw a penalty flag at society because we don't want to get involved. How would the football game play out if the officials knew the rule book but choose, choose not to get involved? It would be chaos. Or the other extreme would be the officials who always interject themselves in the game, but they have different sets of ideas about how the rules should be. Again, chaos. It works best when the officiating crew is united and committed to do its job well. I understand that there are some fans who will never like the officials. They only want their team to win. The church does not need to be liked. It needs to be respected. And how do we do that? We know the rule book, we apply it fairly and completely, and we serve one another continually.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word, these stories we hear about Jesus and his disciples and how real they are. Um, I like the fact that you don't flatter the heroes of the Bible. You know, we, you, you show us their weaknesses. We, we see they're not perfect, and that gives us hope that you could use us also. I pray you would help us to stay committed to following you, to stay focused on you, and that we would uh, make a difference in this world for you. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.